Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So, question I have, and you don't need to answer it out loud, but uh, just rhetorical question, and that's why are we here this evening? And, uh, you know, some people say, well, you know, I just celebrate Easter, just celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then that is very vital, right? That's the resurrection of Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. Uh, if there is no resurrection, then Christ's crucifixion would have been meaningless. He would have just died a martyr for an ideal. In fact, Paul even mentions that in his second letter of Corinthians. He says, uh, he says if, if the resurrection, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then you'd still be dead in your sins. So the resurrection is a crucial aspect of our faith. However, celebrating his resurrection without acknowledging his crucifixion is also missing half the point. Because Jesus died a sacrificial death on the cross, it was necessary for us uh, for the redemption of our sins. And so, so it's very important. That's why we're here tonight. We're, we're recognizing, we're acknowledging his crucifixion. And of course, we're looking forward to Resurrection Sunday. Uh, and uh, as we can celebrate that coming up here in a couple days. Well, after Christ's resurrection, he appeared to his disciples. And uh, in Luke chapter 24, of course, all the Gospels mention it. But in Luke chapter 24, it says that he stood in the midst of them. You know, they had been hiding and uh, for fear and, and from the Jews and uh, probably the Romans too. And they were all huddled in one location. And the, there was a couple disciples that weren't there. We know Judas wasn't there, of course. He went and hung himself after he betrayed, betrayed Christ. And Thomas wasn't there. But the rest of the disciples were there, and Jesus stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. And I can just put myself in that place and think, man, I would have like jumped out of my skin, right? I would have been terrified and frightened, and they were too. They supposed that they had seen a spirit. And so then Jesus showed him the prince in his hands and his feet. And then on top of that, he said, hey, you guys have anything to eat? And, you know, what, what an amazing thing, if you think about it, because uh, a ghost or a spirit or a, just an, a vision of a risen Christ wouldn't have been hungry. <laughs> but Jesus was hungry, and so he asked for food, and he ate right in front of them. And then in verse 44 of chapter 24, he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me throughout the old testament scriptures pointing to the resurrection the crucifixion the suffering of jesus christ and one of the most vivid i think anyways uh prophecies that describe vividly christ's suffering is psalm chapter 22 psalm chapter 22 and we're going to take a, a brief look at that this evening this is a psalm of david and it was written about 1,000 years before the event that we're reading tonight, that we're celebrating tonight, before that took place, about 1,000 years before Christ's crucifixion. And so in Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Well, if that sounds familiar to you, it should, because that was fulfilled literally 
in Christ's crucifixion. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, it says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, crying out to his Father, why have you forsaken me? Hebrews 5 verse 7 tells us, it says, speaking of Jesus, it says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And when I always read that passage, I think of the Garden of Gethsemane before Christ's crucifixion, before he was arrested, he's crying out to the Father, sweating great drops of blood, just agonizing. And and he wasn't agonizing, I don't think, over the fear or the pain or what he was thinking about his death. I think he was agonizing over the separation that he would have with his Father. Because if you think about it, the Son never was separated from his Father, ever. And so he was sensing that, that weight that was being uh, going to come upon us. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 tells us that God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So God was in Christ while Christ was on the cross. And yet, at some point, at some point on the cross, a transaction was made. And I think this is when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was when the Father placed your and my sin, the sin of the world, on his Son. We see it pictured throughout the Old Testament. It's pictured in the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, verse 22. That goat, it says in Leviticus 16, 22, The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities, to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. There was two goats. One goat would be sacrificed, would be slain that day on on the Day of Atonement. The other goat, the scapegoat, they would lay their hands on that, confess their sins, and send it off into the wilderness. That's such a beautiful picture of our forgiveness. Because the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. And if you start traveling west... And you keep going west. You go, eventually I'm going to go east. You're still going west. You'll always go west around the globe. You'll never, you'll never meet up with east if you're going west. If you're going east, you'll always go east. You're never going to meet up with west. That's how far he's removed our sins from us. Such a beautiful picture in the scapegoat. But the scapegoat had, symbolically, sins placed on it before it was released into the wilderness. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, speaking of Jesus. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ, who never sinned, the weight of the sin placed upon him when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, the Lord lay, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's another beautiful Old Testament passage having to deal with Christ's suffering, his crucifixion. And so continuing with verse 1, why are you so far from helping me? And the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, 
and am not and am not silent. And of course, this is a psalm of David. And so David, David was going through something in his life at that point where he's crying out to the Lord in this psalm. And I don't know if he realized it, but he was prophesying of Jesus Christ. Oh my, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear in the night season and am not silent. We know that Jesus Christ was crucified in the morning And from noon to 3 p.m., the Bible tells us it became dark as Christ hung on the cross. And I wonder if that's a symbolic thing about God not looking at our sins, not seeing our sins. Verse 3 says, but you are holy enthroned in the praises of Israel. You see, the problem for you and I is that sin separates us from God. If we sin against one another, it separates us in our relationships with one another as well. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And so I just wonder when it was dark, if if there's something to do with this, what we're talking about now. In verse 4, It says, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. They trusted. They cried. They were were delivered. And and this psalm is speaking about the fathers, the, the patriarchs. But the question is, why was the son not delivered? Going back to Hebrews 5, verse 7 through 8, it says, He who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. The father heard his son crying out on the cross. And even though he was a son, the Father allowed him to die on the cross. And Christ was obedient to his Father to the point of death, the death on the cross. Why wasn't the Son delivered? Isaiah 53, verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Why would the Father allow his only Son to suffer like that on the cross? You know, I've heard people say, well, there's many roads to heaven, and, you know, Jesus is just one path of many paths to get to heaven. And that flies in the face of the Garden of Gethsemane. If you think in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is crying out. He says, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass by me. There was silence, because there was no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's impossible. Why would the father allow his son to be tortured like he was on the cross? There's only one answer. It's the father's great love for us, for you and I. He was willing to let his only begotten son suffer for our sins. 
And I've heard people say, you know, if, if God's a God of love, why does he allow this to happen? Why does he allow that to happen? And why is there such suffering in the world? And my answer, I don't have an answer for all the answer to the question of all the suffering, but my answer is, what greater love could a father have than to give his son to die for somebody else's sins? I'd never give one of my sons to die on the cross for any of you or for anybody. I don't, no offense, but that's just that's the, the reality. Yet that's what the Father did for us, his great love for us. He was willing to let his only begotten son suffer for our sins to purchase your and my deliverance so that we would never be forsaken and so that we would never be ashamed. Then in verse 6, it says this, But I am a worm and no man a reproach of men, and despised by the people. On Wednesday nights, we are going through the book of Philippians. We just finished Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 describes how Christ humbled himself to take on humanity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus who was God, became a man and took on humanity. And he endured the shame of of the cross because you know we wear or we don't but some people wear you know jewelry it's a cross it's really it's 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 kind of really fashionable jewelry but in the day of the roman empire that was capital punishment that was that was hideous that was shameful that was that was the worst thing nobody would wear a cross on their necklace or anything like that Jesus Christ was innocent, and yet he was charged as a guilty person. He was crucified as a common criminal. And, you know, we have all these images, and I actually have a few on my slide projector thing that I'm going to show, but, you know, we have these images where Christ on the cross, he's always covered in a loincloth, but the reality is he was naked. He was stripped naked. So imagine the humility and the shame being on that cross fully exposed to the world around him. But we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Oh, he despised the shame, all right, but he endured it for the joy of redeeming you and I. That was the joy. The joy was you and I. That's why he endured the cross the shame, the suffering. Verse 7, All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Again, think about this. This is a thousand years prior to Christ's crucifixion. David is prophetically writing this scripture and this was fulfilled literally in Luke, well, Luke records it anyways. Luke chapter 23, verses 35 to 39. And the people stood on, but even the rulers, excuse me, and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
and an inscription also was written over him in the letter of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. You know, it's one thing to suffer, to suffer something horrendous, but hopefully, prayerfully, there's someone around you that can comfort you and, you know, maybe, maybe be with you. I'm just starting to read the book of Job, and, and Job, as all these things happen to him, and his friends come, three of his friends come, and they, they sit down next to him in silence for seven days. That was the best thing they could have done. The rest of the book of Job, it's like, why did they, they should have just kept their mouth shut and just sat there with him. But we, we would hope that that would happen if we're going through a difficult time. And our fellowship, you know, we, we, we want to know. If you're going through a difficult we want to know because we want to pray for you. If there's a way we can help you, we want to help you. But that's what the body of Christ is for. But Jesus Christ, he's there suffering. And on top of that, he's being mocked and ridiculed. And, and, and say, hey, if you're really God, why don't you come down from here? Could you imagine staying on the cross with all that coming at you besides the physical suffering? Verse 9, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And we know from the gospel accounts that save for the apostle John and, and a few women, the rest of the disciples had scattered. They weren't there at the cross trying to comfort the Lord. And even though John and the woman were there, they were basically helpless to do anything about it. Christ Jesus suffered alone for your my redemption. For there is none to help me, it says in verse 11. And that reminds me of back to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. And just as they're getting to arrest him, Peter pulls out his sword and Peter's going to try to fight these soldiers, the, the, the high priest servants. And he manages to, I think he was aiming for the center of the head, but being a fisherman, you know, he's not, maybe not skilled with the sword. He ended he got an ear instead, you know. Christ rebukes him heals his enemy's ear and he says this in Matthew 26 verse 53 to 54 or do you think I cannot pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus I mean at a moment Jesus could have said that's it I don't want to do this anymore and boom legions of angels would have been there to take care of business. And yet he stayed on the cross and suffered alone with no one to help him. Verse 12, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. The bulls of Bashan Bashan was a very fertile region, very good, very good pasture region for, for raising livestock. And the bulls of Bashan, 
the raging and roaring lions. What, what is that speaking of? Literal bulls? No, not literal bulls or literal lions. I think this speaks of the brutality of the powerful. You know, the chief priests, they were the ones that were in full control of the Jewish people there, besides the Romans who were over them. But the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and the Roman soldiers, and they were cruel and they were brutal. And I think this is what this is speaking of. But it could also additionally be referring to demons. Because we know in 1 Peter 5.8 that Satan is called a roaring lion. And so we have these people, these cruel leaders that are mocking Christ and they're, they're gloating over his suffering. And I don't doubt that there probably was demons as well. Just joyfully gloating around the cross as Jesus is suffering. Interesting thing. When God's removed from an equation or when God's removed from a culture... And that culture just goes downhill quick. I remember reading a book by Richard Wormbrand as he was suffering, being tortured for Christ in a Romanian prison as, as, a, as a, uh, a, 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 uh, he was a pastor, a Lutheran pastor. And uh, he had been imprisoned during the time when, the, when Romania was actually controlled by the, by the uh, Nazis, when... when uh, Nazi Germany, you know, they were taking over all these nations. And he had been imprisoned by the Nazis during World War II for a period of time. And he writes in his book that when the Nazis, when he was imprisoned with, with the Nazis, I mean, it was bad. But he said it was, it was not as bad as when the communists took over. Because the communists were atheists, had no, no belief whatever. And, and when God is removed from the, he said, there, in fact, there's things he writes, he says, I can't even describe all of the things that I had to endure in my torturing. I can't, I can't even write them in a book because there's no level. Well, here the enemies are more than likely demons as well as men rejoicing and gloating over Christ's suffering. Verse 14 I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. You know, I like to put graphics up here. You guys can see some graphics. And, you know, I'm just going to the Internet and getting some images. And I'm going, as I'm doing this, I'm like, it really doesn't do justice to have a picture of Christ of your suffering. It just really doesn't do justice because, you know, as much as people try to portray it, I just think we can't really literally see what took place. I want to read something to you. It's by a pastor who's a doctor. His name is David Teresaka. And this is the medical aspects of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You can read about it in the Blue Letter Bible if you're ever interested. But he writes this. When the cross was erected upright... There was tremendous strain put on the wrists, arms, and shoulders, resulting in a dislocation of the shoulder and the elbow joints. So if you've ever dislocated something, you know the pain that 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 brings on. The arms, being held up and outward, held the ribcage in a fixed end inspiratory, inspiratory position, which made it extremely difficult to exhale and impossible to take a full breath. 
the victim would not only be able to would only be able to take very shallow breaths. This may explain why Jesus made very short statements while on the cross. As time passed, the muscles from the loss of blood, loss of oxygen, and the fixed position of the body would undergo severe cramps and spasmodic contraction. Due to the shallow breathing, the victim's lungs began to collapse in small areas, causing hypoxia and hypercarbia, or carbia. A respiratory acidosis with lack of compensation by the kidneys due to the loss of blood from the numerous beatings resulted in an increased strain on the heart, which beats faster to compensate. Fluid builds up in the lungs. Under the stress of hypoxia and acidosis, the heart eventually fails. There are several, several different theories on the actual cause of death. One theory states that there was a filling of the pericardium with fluid, which put a fatal strain on the ability of the heart to pump blood. Another theory states that Jesus died of cardiac rupture. The actual cause of Jesus' death, however, may have been multifactorial and related primarily to hypovolemic shock, exhaustion, asphyxia, and perhaps acute heart failure. A fatal cardiac arrhythmia may have caused the final terminal event. And so we read this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, and it has melted within me. Verse 15, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. You imagine the extreme hydration or dehydration that Jesus experienced on the cross. And what's so amazing, if you think about that, not too many days before at the temple, it's recorded in John 7, verse 37. It says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Many chapters earlier, John chapter 4, Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at a well and asks for a drink. And they, they have this conversation that takes place. Jesus starts speaking of himself and he says, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And I share those passages because if you think about it, here is Jesus Christ, the fountain of living water. In fact, the creator of all the aquifers, of every source of water on the planet, Jesus is the creator. And here he is on the cross, thirsty, wanting a drink. In John 19, verse 28, it says, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Again, remember, this is David writing this psalm. And in David's day, capital punishment was death by stoning. But crucifixion, it wasn't even invented when Jesus or when David wrote this psalm. 
It became a common form of capital punishment from the 6th century B.C. to the 4th century A.D. And the Roman practice of crucifixion was abolished in 337 by Constantine. But here David is prophesying word for word, describing it so accurately, the form of crucifixion, the form of execution, that wouldn't even be invented until 400 years after he wrote that. And like I said, a thousand years later, Christ would be crucified in this manner. Verse 17, I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That was fulfilled in John 19, verse 23 and 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, to each soldier apart, excuse me, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Isn't that amazing? These things were prophesied and fulfilled literally as Christ was hanging there on the cross. I want to circle back in our conversation here, back to verse 6, where it says, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. That word worm is the word tola, the Hebrew word tola. And the word literally means crimson, or the color of blood. And it's translated throughout the Old Testament as either the word scarlet or crimson, same color basically. Scarlet shows up in many places in the Old Testament. In fact, you could even say there's a scarlet thread that runs through scriptures all the way through. Scarlet thread, the the dye was made from this worm. Scarlet thread was woven into the material for the tabernacle. The breastplate of the high priest had the scarlet thread in it. It was used in the cleansing for leprosy, along with cedar wood and hyssop. It was used in the preparation of the ashes of the red heifer for cleansing rituals. Again, cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet. The scarlet cord was in the window of Rahab the harlot in Jericho. That's how she was delivered. When they looked and they saw that there was a scarlet cord in that window, they were instructed that anyone that was in that, in that room was to, be, was to be spared. And even in the New Testament, as Jesus is being mercilessly pummeled and beaten by the Roman soldiers, and he had already been flogged, so his skin is just ripped off of his, off of his back, in verse 27 of Matthew, uh, verse 28 of Matthew 27, it says, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. I can't imagine, and later on they ripped that thing right off. Every place that crimson or scarlet shows up in scriptures, it's in relation to sacrifices, cleansing, and redemption. And it's also the name, literally, of the Tola worm where the scarlet dye in ancient times was extracted from the bodies of the dead female worms. Its name used to be called Cocos elicis, but it has been renamed and reclassified 
as a scale insect called Kermes elysis. You can look it up in encyclopedia or online, whatever. It's fascinating, though. When the female Kermes elysis is ready to lay eggs, she climbs up a tree and literally attaches herself to the bark of a tree, and she stays there permanently until she dies. She lays her eggs beneath her body as she's suspended on that tree. And as she's attached to that tree, the body starts filling up with this fluid, red, crimson colored fluid. And after the larvae hatch from the eggs, the mother dies, and the crimson fluid in her body flows out and covers the larvae below her. And both the tree and the larvae are stained red by this crimson fluid. It's interesting because the larvae, they begin their life stained with this crimson fluid and they feed off of that fluid to sustain their life. Additionally, there's this white wax that forms between the body of the mother and the tree And that white wax is generally only visible after the dead body of the mother is removed from the tree. Then they see this white wax. Fascinating. Later on, the larvae is going to metamorphose. They're going to, you know, through the process of metamorphosis, they'll eventually be transformed into the likeness of their mother. You, You think of that, how God created nature to be like that for a picture of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and I. And we're to be transformed in the likeness of our Savior. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your, your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The writer of Hebrews says this, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And so I think of that crimson blood or the crimson color of this tola worm and the white wax that's underneath it after the, after the worm has died. And that reminds me of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Fascinating. Fascinating. All these prophecies that were fulfilled literally in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then even this, 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 this worm, this, it looked like a grub worm basically, this, this worm, God created it, I think just to be that perfect picture of what he would do on the cross for us. Fascinating. Fascinating. 